This is the final episode in a three-part series. It discusses sexual assault, murder, and crime scenes. Listener discretion is advised. This is The Fall Line. In the late spring of 1977, Atlanta, Georgia was on watch. The citizens were finally aware that a killer had been stalking the city's parks. The Atlanta Lover's Lane murders had made the papers. Reporter Ken Willis had made sure of that. And now, the other journalists... They were joining in. Atlanta's homicide squad was still working on the crimes, which Lieutenant W.K. Perry, who led the division, described as, quote, the biggest case in the city in the past 25 years. In May, the Atlanta Daily World reported that then-governor of Georgia, George Busby, announced a $3,000 reward for information in the murders of Lover's Lane victims Veronica Hill, LeBrian Lovett, and Diane Collins. It doesn't sound like much. It isn't much, even with inflation. That's about $13,515 today. But according to the Atlanta Constitution, quote, Georgia law authorizes the governor to offer a reward not to exceed $1,000 for information leading to the arrest or conviction of persons who have committed a murder in the state. So Governor Busby had done so, $1,000 for each life. Veronica, LeBrian, Diane. To our knowledge, there were no more park stakeouts. Not after the APD set up two in April of 1977, over the weekend that the gunmen should have struck. They'd set decoy cars in both West Manor and Adams Parks, where the three couples had been attacked. But the gunmen hadn't shown. But APD was still searching. Their police files show that they were examining their own ranks, pulling files on officers who'd been flagged for various issues, and taking calls from departments across the state. They were checking on security guards, ex-cops, anyone who might have those attributes they'd locked onto as their only real clues, that the killer used a double-handed crouched shooting position common to law enforcement and military, and shot with Hornaday wadcutter bullets a target ammunition common at APD ranges. There were others, too, more men who had records for violent assault, suspects from early in the investigation who were revisited. But one of the most interesting, strange, really, things that we discovered about their investigations was that, at some point, a serious suspect in the park shootings was a teenager. This was surprising, as it wasn't covered in our FOIA release, but it wouldn't have been released if the teen had been a juvenile. And a FOIA almost never contains everything, especially if documents are being withheld for active investigation. For instance, if a suspect is still under consideration. We discovered the existence of the juvenile suspect when we came upon a 1979 retrospective of the Lover's Lane murders written by Ken Willis, the same reporter who'd broken the story in 1977. In that same article, we also discovered another clue that had not been previously released, 
A footprint had been discovered at the West Manor Park crime scene, the second shooting. Lieutenant Perry surmised the killer might have run into a puddle, splashed, and left a fresh pair of prints nearby. They were sneaker prints, but Perry doesn't specify a brand of sneakers or a shoe size. He also admitted that the print could have come from a park visitor, but its placement and wetness make it likely that it was left by the killer. A sneaker. Does that make it more likely that the suspect was a juvenile? Not necessarily. By the 1970s, athletic shoes were also widely popular as streetwear for adults and were not just worn in the gym. Although earlier articles reported that police had consulted psychologists, they hadn't gone into detail about the information they sought. However, in a 1979 retrospective on the murders, Ken Willis was able to speak with one of those psychologists, an Emory professor, Dr. Fred Crawford. Though Dr. Crawford died three years after the publication of the article, he did publish many of his findings with the Constitution. As we mentioned, one of the 30 suspects that the APD questioned was a teenager. That lined up with Crawford's profile, which differed from the FBI's. If you'll recall, it placed the offender as older. But Crawford developed his profile after the suspect was identified, which, of course, can have a striking effect on the very nature of the profile itself. Here are the points from Crawford's profile, as printed in the Constitution. One note here, it's sometimes difficult to tell when Crawford is describing what he knows about the teen versus what he suspects about the teen. In terms of Crawford's overall assessment, he seems to think the teen is a strong contender for the Atlanta Lover's Lane killer. He described the juvenile as, quote, a young black male, athletic. Quote, he had a sex paradox in his mind. Quote, there was trouble in his family. His mother was a loose woman, and the father had left the home. Quote, the suspect himself was a young man ill at ease with girls. He hated the idea of sex and the failure of fidelity. As soon as the father left the home, the trouble started. Quote, the suspect was the son of a military man. Then, Crawford went on to provide his analysis as if this specific teenage boy had indeed committed the crime. He wrote that, quote, The young man went hunting the lovers at night, and his parents did not know or care where he was. Quote, This psychological motivation drove him until he finished his mission for the night. Quote, He waited until only one couple was left in the park, and the two were so involved with each other, they didn't know anyone else was around. This profile is all we know about the APD's consultation with psychologists. We're not sure what other information they were offered, aside from the FBI profile that we shared in Episode 1, which differed significantly from Dr. Crawford's analysis. The FBI, if you'll recall, was focused on an adult male, one who lived in the area, and they laid out specifics regarding mental illness, relationship status, and the suspect likely living close to parks. And they touched on the movie, The Town That Dreaded Sundown. How useful could these profiles have been 
How useful could they be now? We discussed the case's profiles with two people, retired APD Lieutenant Danny Egan, who you've heard throughout the series, and Dr. Ivaristus Obinion. Dr. Obinion is an assistant professor at Middle Georgia State University, where he teaches courses in criminology, criminal behavior, justice, and other subjects. One of Dr. Obinion's areas of study is the connection between criminal and racial profiling. He also warns of the danger of treating profiling as a science, but believes it can be useful in the right situations. Profiling is, according to the FBI, it's a criminal investigative tool. And the problem with it is the misuse of criminal profiling and also racial profiling. Criminal profiling profiles based on guesswork. So people consider it a science, some of them, but others also consider it an art, an intuitive type of art, where people do an educated guesswork. And sometimes it actually comes out to be factual, but that does not necessarily mean that it is science. It's, it's really an educated guess. Another problem with profiling is it leads to other type of profiling, especially racial profiling. And this racial profiling can be devastating to those who experience it. And so the misuse of it becomes a problem, not only for the police department, but also for the community as a whole. Dr. Obinion feels that profiling can be most useful when there is reliable eyewitness information that can give investigators a series of concrete facts or observations to go on, versus a series of assumptions that profilers make, sight unseen, about who they think killers tend to be. We asked Dr. Obinion his opinion on the basic suspect profile, based on the information he had, which included the FOIA, archival research, and all available news clippings. I believe that this killer is somebody who is familiar with police work. If I was asked, that's what I would tell the APD, that they should check within their ranks at that time. Do you feel like the FBI profile was so general and vague just because they had so few things to go on? I believe that it was just too broad and too vague. And it's probably because they do not have enough information to put a profile together. So for you, the information that seems to stand out would be the ammunition and then the killer's knowledge of the stakeouts. Am I correct? Yes, that is my main evidence. I mean, you just don't stop like that. If he's really serious about his work, every 28 days and then he just stopped. When they were now putting law enforcement in the park, that bothers me. My position in this particular case is that I believe the person that is responsible for these killings is somebody who is familiar with law enforcement community, very close to law enforcement community, and able to get information. We asked retired Lieutenant Danny Egan similar questions. Having both participated in the Atlanta child murders investigation and been a senior official at APD Homicide Squad during his career, he'd certainly had exposure to a number of profiles over the years. Profiles have a place. When you have a case like this where you're at a loss as to how to develop a suspect, then there's nothing wrong with the profile, but the profile doesn't really give you the information you need to 
do anything other than consider the possibilities. All it is is probability based on previous encounters with other suspects and what the likelihood is of a set of circumstances fitting in with the crime in question. And a lot of times they're so generic that it's like, well, this narrows it down to 40,000 people and, and you know, we can, we can work from there, which is really of no help. And I, I found out too that with profiles, like they don't lead to the identity of a suspect. They don't point you in the direction of where you can put your hands on a suspect or develop a suspect into a real prosecutable case. After the suspect is identified and arrested, then you can go back and compare the circumstances of the suspect's life and his actions against the profile, and there's going to be similarities there. But you know, suspects alone are suspects between you know 20 and 40 years old. Well, tell me something really good. Uh, suspects probably not married. Okay, but it's not to say he couldn't be married. You know, it's it's like there's too much information there that really doesn't help you. It's not saying that it's worthless, but I just don't know how much help it is in the majority of cases. Uh, Wayne Williams, good example. Profiles drawn up about Wayne Williams. And, and information in there was true, some of it. But it didn't lead to anything to facilitate his arrest. What brought the attention to him being arrested was the fact he was on a bridge when there was a loud splash and he didn't have an adequate explanation as to why he was on the bridge. That's what brought that case together. So the profile didn't really help. Wayne Williams didn't get on the radar because of the profile. He got on the radar because of old-fashioned police work and a great degree of luck. And I've always said I'd rather be lucky than good any day. Uh, and a lot of times that's what it comes down to is, is being lucky or seeing an opportunity and being able to take advantage of it and, and use it to its fullest extent. That's how you put a case together or get the, get the break where you can put a case together. But they never got it in this, and it wasn't for lack of trying. There was a lot of work put into this case. Uh, and then the, the stories about uh, that I read about the, the police department getting mad at the paper for running a story on this. Well, the police department had not been able to bring this thing to a resolution in three months, and six people had been shot, three of them fatally. The public needed to be warned about what was going on because this was something that was out of control and there was no definite direction that this was going in that was going to make it stop. And of course, I understand the police part of it. It compromises the investigation. It maybe puts the suspect on alert that everybody's aware of what's going on, but the suspect's gonna know, the police know what's going on. He's, he's not uh, operating in a vacuum where he's not knowing that the police have not picked up on the fact there have been three shootings on three different occasions in parks. He, he's going to understand and realize every time he does this, the police are looking at it. So just because it's in the press doesn't mean that uh, he's going to become uh, more careful or just quit doing it altogether. And that's another thing, too, is what motivated him to do it in the first place and then how he turns that motivation off where he's not doing it anymore. He's doing this for a reason, and maybe he can control the reason, maybe he can't, I don't know.
Um, and that's not to say that like that's an excuse for him to do this. But uh, his compulsion to do this is something that is making it happen on a regular basis. And now all of a sudden he's turned it off, which makes me wonder what's happened. Has he moved? Same thing we had with the serial rapist years ago. He, the, the rape stopped. I was like, is this guy dead? Is he in prison? This could be the case here. We, we don't know. Could he have realized he was going to get caught with the lover's lane situation? So instead, every 28 days, changed its crime, did something else. I don't, I mean, that's possible. I won't say that that's impossible, but I don't think he would have diverted his attention from doing this type of crime to another type. And this other type of crime would have satisfied this urge that was making him do what he did. Very easily, this could have been a sex crime. This is, could have been a sexual release he's getting every time he's pulling the trigger. Uh, that would not be beyond reality, uh, that, that he's sexually motivated for whatever reason to do this. We can't say for sure what APD made of either profile, but the juvenile suspect was never named, or, to our knowledge, arrested. Of course, Juveniles are not generally named, unless charged as adults. But we've run into that plenty of times in our work. According to Ken Willis's published interviews with Lieutenant Perry, he, quote, wasn't convinced on the juvenile theory. He noted that there were other suspects. And Perry said there were holes in the story and that other theories were feasible. A member of law enforcement, a killer inspired by religious fanaticism, Someone with a personal connection to the parks, a negative experience, maybe. And Perry said, quote, We're in touch with other police departments who think they have similar Lover's Lane cases. And this implies that the killer could have moved on. The cases Perry mentioned? Those included a man who'd attacked a couple in North Carolina and forced the woman into the trunk of a car. And then in August of 1977, there came a very strange report in the Atlanta Constitution. A man had raped a woman in southwest Atlanta and claimed he was the Lover's Lane killer. Per Ken Willis, quote, Homicide Lieutenant W.K. Perry confirmed the man is being sought in connection with the unsolved murders, but expressed doubt the rapist is the killer. At this point, he's just one of about 50 other suspects we have. The situation felt different. On July 31, 1977, the survivor was walking with a friend on the way to a party along Cascade Road in southwest Atlanta when she was grabbed and dragged off the road by a man she didn't know. He pulled her behind a local church. That's when a second assailant appeared. The second man cut her neck with a knife and told her he was the Lover's Lane killer. We weren't able to find follow-up information on this particular story, but there were other persons of interest who appeared in local reporting. Soon after that incident, an additional suspect was named by the APD. One from Columbus, Georgia, which is south of Atlanta, about 100 miles or so. Constitution reporter Jim Stewart reported in July of 1977 that, quote, the prime suspect in the abduction and murder of a Columbus woman two weeks ago was a person of interest in the Lover's Lane slangs. Primarily, it seems, because he'd been in Atlanta the month of the last attack. March. Police knew this because he was arrested in Fulton County for robbery. The suspect, William Anthony Brooks, had family in Atlanta 
and was at large at the time of the article's publication. Lieutenant Perry told the Constitution he was interested in questioning Brooks, but that he was only one of a long list of people they were looking at. There are two other prime suspects Perry mentions in the article. Quote, a former Atlanta policeman and a former policeman from South Georgia. Per Willis, quote, the former Atlanta officer raised suspicions because of some things he did while on the force. And the South Georgia officer, he'd been flagged for sexual harassment of women while on the job. It doesn't specify whether they were law enforcement or women who were being arrested. Apparently, that suspect was also in Atlanta the weekends of the murders and attacks. And Willis notes at the time of the article's publication that the ex-officer was, quote, in custody elsewhere on a molestation charge. But ultimately, though there were suspects, though the APD had ballistic evidence and Gordon Whitfield as an eyewitness, although he had not gotten a close look at the gunman, they simply didn't have much to go on. The gunman's sudden break in pattern left them without a way to gather more clues. No one wanted another attack, but that would have been the only way to gather more hard evidence. Everything else was up to supposition. Like, why did he attack every 28 days? Maybe the dates weren't important at all. Maybe it had to do with something entirely different, like the phases of the moon. As an astrologer pointed out to us, each attack fell during a point of the moon cycle, the waning crescent, when the moonlight would have been especially low. But like everything else, it's just a guess. When we interviewed Atlanta Constitution reporter Ken Willis, we asked him his thoughts on the Lover's Lane killer and why he stopped. After all, serial killers so rarely have that level of control, not unless they die, move on, or are incarcerated. If the gunman had been a member of law enforcement, could the stakeouts have been frightening enough to force him to exert control? I have thoughts about why the killing stopped. I, I think either, either the person was in prison for some other reason or died. I, I, I think that the, the killings were so compulsive that it would have been very difficult for the killer to stop. And there were plenty of parts for this killer to strike in that he had not been in before. So uh, I think it's either he was imprisoned or died. I was impressed as I went through the files that the entire homicide squad was involved in this investigation. It was clearly top priority. Rarely did Jack Perry get involved in a case. Rarely. And if, if you go through all these files, all the homicide investigators that I saw who participated were the top homicide investigators. So they were, they were all over it. They were, they were concerned. Retired Lieutenant Danny Egan agreed with Ken Willis. Looking back and examining the file, I mean, the investigation that was done over 40 years ago was very extensive. And I, I can't find any fault with what the police department did 
in the course of investigating this. Uh, Lieutenant Perry, Jack Perry, uh, he was the go-to guy. He was the guy that knew how to investigate. Uh, probably the best homicide commander that I was aware of the whole time I was there. And uh, he knew how to direct an investigation and to get results. So uh, you had the right guy at the right time. Some of these detectives in reading the file that I've seen names, Welcome Harris, who was one of the stakeout officers. He was also an active homicide investigator, uh, excellent investigator. Uh, W.K. Jowers, another one that was on stakeout. He was in the other car. Uh, he was another homicide detective, and he was just, he was good at what he did. So you had a lot of good people focusing their attentions on this, and this wasn't solved because of shoddy police work or uh, somebody not, doing what they should have been doing. The things were done, it's just you can't solve all the cases. The breaks didn't show up. And that's not to say that they didn't develop information on the suspect, it's just they didn't know it and sometimes you don't recognize what you're looking at. Uh, this, this one's a real puzzle. As we researched this case, two questions recurred. Did the Lover's Lane killer ever strike again? And how can this case be solved today? In regard to the first, in June of 1979, there was another Atlanta shooting that, for some, recalled the Lover's Lane murders. Per the Atlanta Daily World, an 18-year-old student was, quote, wounded as she sat parked in a car with her date in the parking lot of Farrell High School. The victim, Mitzi Richardson, was shot in the back but survived though doctors said she had been, quote, paralyzed from the chest down. That school was in the vicinity of the parks, but Lieutenant W.K. Perry said that other factors didn't necessarily match the Lover's Lane killer's M.O., though he was not specific about what those differences might be. He told reporters, quote, If it's the park killer, he's changed his method of operation in many ways. But Perry had, quote, not ruled out the possibility of a connection. And another attack came in 1979, when, per the Constitution, a young couple was attacked while parking in Fulton County. The male victim was locked in the car's trunk, and the female victim was sexually assaulted. The two were then driven to a second location and released by the assailant, who the couple described as, quote, a heavily built white male in his early 20s with a, quote, country accent. So, not close to the descriptions the APD had of the Lover's Lane killer, and the MO was quite different too. As far as our research has taken us, the attack on Mitzi Richardson feels the most familiar, but we can't say why Lieutenant Perry was skeptical that it could be the work of the gunman. Otherwise, there haven't been similar crimes in that time frame that seem to match. So it brings us back to the question, what happened to him? And if he didn't keep killing, didn't reoffend, how can he be identified today? We asked retired Lieutenant Danny Agin how he'd approach this cold case, if he began working on it now. If you were handed this case today and said, this is now your cold case, where would you go? Um, first, you have to determine if you're going to re-examine this as a cold case, first what you would have to do is re-examine uh, what you have. 
put put things in order, um, account for all the reports that were made, and then go through them and see exactly what story is being told. Uh, see what evidence you have, locate all the evidence, and then uh, see if anything in the evidence bin is of use for re-examination. Of course, everybody wants to think about DNA, and that's a great place to go, but this is not necessarily a case that lends itself towards DNA. Re-examine statements, go through the witness list again, and then, you know, see what you have, see if anything can shake loose. Maybe go out here and talk to witnesses again. But I'm of the mind that this guy didn't tell a lot of people and when I say that, I say that facetiously. He didn't tell anybody what he was doing. And there's nobody that can drop a dime on him and say, this is the guy you need to, to go get because he told me something. What leads you to that um, theory? Who would he tell? Who would he tell that would hold a secret? Why would he take this chance? This ain't something you can sit around with your buds and talk about. His wife... Assuming he's married, she may know. Of course, she may have been afraid to say anything because he's going to kill her. Um, and that's not beyond uh, belief that he could have been married and his wife knew what was going on, but for fear, she wouldn't say anything. But this is just hypothetical talk. Uh, we really don't know. But, but I just don't think he told anybody what he was doing. And there's nobody that has direct knowledge that could phone in or talk to the police and say, this is the man, and this is why I know it, because he told me. Um, the gun, I've been thinking about this too. The gun's identified as a 38 Colt revolver. Now, my question is, and y'all are not firearms experts, but you might find out the answer to this. I'll give you a little lesson here. A 357 revolver will shoot a 38 bullet. A 38 revolver will not shoot a 357 bullet. The bullet's slightly longer and much more powerful. It will make the gun, the bullet won't even fit in there. But the bullet diameter is the same for a 38 and a 357. The cartridge is a little bit longer, which gives it that magnum punch. What if he was shooting 38 bullets in a 357 revolver? All they looked at was 38 revolvers. And once the, once the crime lab told them 38 Colt revolvers, that's what they focused on. Did they consider 357 revolvers? And I didn't see any mention in any of those reports for a 357 revolver. Now, are y'all with me on what I'm saying? The bullets are interchangeable between a 38 and a 357. You can put 38 bullets in a 357. So you put 38 wad cutter bullets in a 357, do the shooting. And then the guns identified as a 38 revolver, not a 357 revolver. And nobody, there's no mention in there of a 357 being a possibility. Now, I don't know if Colt rifling on a 357 is different than the rifling on a 38. Maybe that's the answer. But I don't know. Is there a specific type of person or profession that has a 357? State troopers back then carried 357s. A lot of sheriff's deputies carried 357. Uh, 357 was the go-to gun back in the uh, 60s and the, the 70s before everybody went to semi-automatic pistols, except for big cities like Atlanta where we carried 38 revolvers. And then I'll get into this too. Everybody remembers 
going to the firing range either the next year after the string of shootings and our guns being taken and fired into a barrel. And the whole belief was, from everybody, was they're checking guns to see if they can make a match between the suspect and a police officer. Once again, I've never read this report before. This case was old and cold when I was in charge of homicide. I didn't go back and try to open it up. We were, we were busy with enough stuff. But the report, the master file indicates that the gun was a 38 Colt. Well, the majority of guns issued at APD were Smith & Wesson Model 10 38 revolvers. So if the gun truly was a Colt, I'm trying to get my head wrapped around why everybody would have had their gun test fired since 99% of the guns at APD were 38 Smith & Wesson revolvers. All of this has evolved over time. Some people were issued 38 revolvers. Um, say, for instance, you were a patrolman and you got assigned a vice. Well, that big old 38 revolver is now not a gun that you can easily conceal under your coat. You would go to property section and say, I need a, uh, a smaller revolver. And they would say, well, let's see what we got. Well, these are guns that have been confiscated. And they're perfectly good guns. There's nothing wrong with them, but they're guns that are not going to be returned to the criminals. So, you know, what do you want? You want a Colt? You want a Smith & Wesson? Two-inch? Uh, round butt? Square butt? I mean, you could go in there and pick you out a gun. Well, you very easily could wind up with a Colt. Some officers would carry two guns. I was one of them. Most officers that were with it carried two guns. Uh, one gun is just not enough when shooting starts. And... If you lose a gun, then you need to have another one that's readily accessible. So uh, most officers carried two guns, and those guns typically would have to be purchased with your own money. Back in the day, yearly qualification at the, fire, at the range, you would go and qualify with your service revolver, and that was it. If you carried a second gun, they didn't care. The only thing that you, you had to put in a request to carry the second gun and it had to be approved through the chain of command. And the gun had to be a 38 and nothing else. You couldn't carry any other kind of weapon, but that was it. And then at some point, years after all of this, they started making people qualify with their second weapon. So they would have you shoot. You had to actually hit the target at different ranges, um, distances, and uh, show that you were proficient with that smaller gun. There are few people left who can, or will, discuss the Lover's Lane killings and attacks. One of the three survivors, Dennis Langston, was murdered only two years later, in 1979, during an unrelated altercation in a parking lot. And Gordon Whitfield? He passed away in 2012. And the families of those killed in 1977 have rarely spoken to the press. There was a sense in those early news reports that they didn't want to attract the attention of the killer, and that could still be true today. When the news finally broke, after the third attack that killed Diane Collins and injured Gordon Whitfield, only then did the families know that they were connected, that someone had been stalking Atlanta and had come for their children. Dennis Langston, a survivor of the second attack, was certainly afraid of another. He told Ken Willis in 1979, quote, 
If he was crazy enough to do it then, he's crazy enough to do it again. And Lieutenant Perry agreed. He told the Constitution, quote, A man who is psychotic has got to do his job, and his job is to kill. When Ken Willis wrote his retrospective on the Atlanta Lovers Lane murders in 1979, the city was paused on the edge of a chasm. It was March, the anniversary of the final shooting. In just a few months, July 1979, the first children would be found, their murders relegated to the back of the newspaper. Ken Willis told us the stories of the first children. They were printed by the obituaries, while the murder of a white conventioneer who was in town for a medical conference was splashed across the front page. That was how the Atlanta child murders would be reported on for months. Ken Willis's 1979 story on the anniversary of the Lover's Lane murders, that did make the front page. But the families of the three homicide victims, LeBrian, Veronica, Diane, they declined to participate. Gordon Whitfield, Diane's fiance, he declined as well. It was communicated that talking about the event was extremely hard on him, and his mother, quote, shielded him from reporters' calls. Dennis Langston and Deidre Tatum, the couple who survived the second attack, had spoken to Ken, talking about the toll and fear and pain of the last two years, and the wait and the worry. Would he come back for them? They didn't want to go out anymore. Barely in their 20s, and they were cloistered. Dennis felt that they just couldn't risk it. But even in the oldest cases, there is hope. In 2019, Atlanta police spoke with Atlanta's CBS 46 News. That report detailed the efforts of Sergeant Raymond Layton, who, quote, spent hours recreating the 42-year-old case files in hope of solving it. Per CBS, in 2019, Layton began the process of, quote, tracking down stored evidence, including a blood sample. If you'll recall, a blood sample was taken at the second crime scene, the attack on Dennis Langston and Deidre Tatum, because the couple had different blood types and all the shattered glass led investigators to suspect the killer had been injured. The implication is that DNA technology could now be used to help identify the killer. Certainly, he might be dead, but at least there would be a name. We reached out to APD in hopes of interviewing Sergeant Layton for the series or receiving an update on the case, but we were unable to secure their participation. We hope we will be able to update you and tell you that material has been found and that testing is underway. 44 years is a long time to wait for answers. And there are people who've been waiting, who've been worried about the gunmen who might return for them all this time. If you have any information regarding the attacks and murders that took place between January and March of 1977 in Adams and West Manor Park, call the Atlanta Police Department's Homicide Unit at 404-546-4235. This series would not have been possible without the reporting of Ken Willis, who spent years reporting on the Lover's Lane case 
even under the threat of losing press access. His archived articles and his interviews with us were invaluable. Retired APD Lieutenant Danny Agan was similarly integral to this series. We could not have produced it without his expertise. Thank you to you both. Thanks also to criminology professor Dr. Obinion for his insight into profiling. And thank you for listening. The Fall Line is a fully independent show, and we appreciate listener support. It allows us to do research, obtain FOIAs, pay our content advisors, and support and donate to the causes we care about. If you try out the products we advertise, please use our sponsor codes. It really helps. And if you'd like to support the show and the stories we cover, join us on Patreon. We're raising Patreon funds to continue to pay for the Milberg Twins billboard and to fund a therapy fund for families who've been on the show. Recently, we've raised enough for therapy for two people, and we want to expand that. Each and every one of our patrons helps us continue this work, and we are so grateful for your help. On Patreon, you can get early release, ad-free versions of our regular episodes, plus blogs and videos for only $5 a month. We've also added video live streams, which all patrons can enjoy, starting at just a dollar. The Fall Line is written, hosted, and researched by Laura Norton, with additional research by Brian Waters and Kim Fritz. Additional research support for this series by Shannon Geary, Lexi Newhouse, and Haley Gray. Interviews by Brooke Hargrove. Produced, engineered, and scored by Maura Curry. Content advisement, Brandy C. Williams, Liv Fallon, and Vic Kennedy. And, as always, our most special thanks to Angie Dodd. Thanks also to Beth Atchinson. Currently, our monthly donation is going to private investigations for the missing. Please join us in supporting this nonprofit. They need funds to help families access the service of PIs.